rise this afternoon to say a few words about the uh, immigration reform bill. And as the son of an immigrant, somebody who came to this country at the age of 17 without a nickel in his pocket, needless to say, I support immigration. Uh, our country is unique in the world. Our country is great because, in fact, we are the sons and daughters of immigrants. And I think we should all be very proud of that. God bless America. I was a youth when I arrived. Everything was bigger then, and it had a better shine. I was only 10. Even the home that we was in was just a glimpse of the prosperity America gives. Allah bless it, because this country gave me so much. But most importantly, it gave me a chance to grow up. Gave me a voice that mattered, and the choice to use it. Told me I'd be anything, and gave me chances to prove it. I wouldn't be who I am if that open door had closed. I'm so thankful there's no hatred where all my hopes have grown Without the opportunity here to shape my life I'd be living where at any given they could take my rights Burn Today is a tragic day for humanity For the people of the United States For the future of our planet And for the children 30,000 of whom in the third world Will starve to death today While we spend billions to wage this war It is incumbent upon us God bless America, but there's people out to take advantage, they paint the world to be savage, just to invade against the masses, it's just reckless, despite all positive efforts, some people are just too far gone to get the message, we gotta cease, it's not myths, even the strong can have peace, lives can't be risked just to take the foreign land streets, or resources, or to eat off them, and stop blaming language barriers for our somewhat morbid precautions, it's a fracture, not completely broken, some minds are closed and some minds are completely open but i've seen a plan and i see a man and i see a reason to stand behind him and help him go out and do what he can feel the burn and that was bernie sanders feel the burn by fda music which you can find by searching for fda music tv on youtube greetings and welcome back to bernie 2016 this is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. And you can find out more at Bernie-2016.com. On there, you'll find some links to previous episodes, as well as my Flipboard magazine, Bernie for President, which I've collected a bunch of articles online, up to over 12,000 articles in that magazine at this point. And I've started up a Patreon. If you have any money you want to send my way to support this podcast after you've supported Bernie Sanders' campaign and any other local groups that are uh, out there supporting Bernie, have a little bit more money to go, uh, you can send that to me. You can go to patreon.com slash unrelated things and you can donate and that will support this podcast. So uh, let's get started. So last episode was on the eve of the 
caucuses and primaries on March 22nd. So we'll take a quick look at the results there. There were three states that voted on March 22nd, Arizona, Idaho, and Utah. Taking a look at Arizona, Arizona was the toughest state for Bernie Sanders. And in Arizona, Bernie won 39.9% of the votes. He picked up 32 delegates, actually 30 pledged delegates with the two extra worst superdelegates. Hillary Clinton picked up 57.6% of the vote in Arizona, picking up 44 delegates there. There are some significant problems with the voting in Arizona, particularly in uh, Maricopa County, which is the county that contains Phoenix, among other places. And the majority of the votes coming out of Arizona came out of Maricopa County. In Maricopa County, the leadership there decided that they didn't need the 200-plus voting uh, places in that county that they had in the last election, that they would be perfectly fine with 60. So they cut a huge number of polling places out of the mix. I think um, last time they, I don't know what the numbers they saw there last time, but they they, they reduced the uh, number of polling places by an enormous margin. And um, to... Uh, what should be not very surprising to uh, anybody that's, you know, keeping track of things, the lines at those remaining polling places were enormous. They were extremely long. Some people waited in line to vote. And this isn't caucus where you go in and you spend a considerable amount of time uh, voting because the process takes a long time. These, This was a primary in Arizona, and it's... You know, you check in, you get your ballot, you fill out your ballot, you return your ballot, you're done. So when things are working well, you know, travel time and all, you know, this might take a half an hour of your time for an average person if the polling place isn't too far away. In Maricopa County, there were a very large number of voters who waited four hours and five hours in line to get into the polling place to vote. So it was it was a disaster as far as uh people's voting rights in certain areas in Arizona where uh the governing bodies did an extraordinarily poor job to support the voters there. And however, if their goal was to suppress the voters there, then they did actually a pretty admirable job in uh in doing that um that was uh you know it's it's points to just another way that voters get disenfranchised we we meaning me and and others i've read um you know point to some southern states to the likes of Alabama or Mississippi or some other states that have uh, frequently had these types of decisions made where they really disenfranchise voters. They um, reduce polling places um, in in poorer areas. They boost requirements, uh, ID requirements, and those types of things that really can make it uh, 
very challenging for some people to get to the polls, very challenging for people to vote once they do get to the polls. And another issue happened in Arizona. There seems to be a sizable number, and I don't know if there's really been any measure taken, but I've seen some anecdotal evidence and some examples of it online. But there seems to be a sizable number of Democratic voters in Arizona whose party was not registered correctly and was in the in in a couple of examples that I heard online was actually changed after being registered correctly. People who have been registered and voted Democrat for years went to the polls to vote in the primary and were told that their registration was not for the Democrats, that it was independent or it was Republican, and that they would not be allowed to vote. And a number of them voted by provisional ballot, meaning we will accept a ballot from you, but if we can't validate that you are uh, a registered Democrat, then this ballot will not count. So there were a large number of people also who are disenfranchised in Arizona for those reasons as well. Um, I think that uh, both of those issues, I think, had some impacts on Bernie Sanders total, but also could certainly have had similar impacts on uh, Hillary Clinton's results as well. So I don't think that, you know, removing all of those issues, I don't think would have made a major difference in the final results in Arizona. But I do think there would have been uh, some some sway one way or the other. I I think that it would probably uh, move more in Bernie's favor, especially if a number of independents had changed their their registration to Democrat before uh, the primary and then went there and found that that registration had not changed. Those people are more likely to be Bernie Sanders supporters than Hillary Clinton supporters. Um, but in any case, the uh, Arizona results are in. A lot of lessons have been learned from the voting there, and uh, Hillary Clinton did top Bernie Sanders in Arizona uh, and picked up some additional delegates there. The other two states that uh, voted on March 22nd were Idaho and Utah, and both uh, had a very, very different picture. In both of those states, Bernie Sanders won by giant margins the the types of margins that hillary clinton was hitting down south in in like mississippi and alabama um in idaho in the caucus there bernie sanders won 78 percent of the votes there and hillary clinton won 21.2 percent bernie came out with 17 delegates to clinton's five and utah was similar uh but even a slightly stronger margin there. Bernie Sanders won 79.3% of the votes in Utah to Hillary Clinton's 20.3. Sanders picked up 26 delegates to to Clinton's 20. So Sanders came out of the day on the 22nd um, with a larger number of delegates to than Hillary Clinton. It wasn't a a giant margin, uh, but but Bernie picked up, I want to say it was on the neighborhood of 23 uh, additional delegates or so. Um, I think it was somewhere in the low 20s that he, he picked up versus uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, that, that may include also the uh, 
the Democrats abroad results that he that were shortly before that. So of the last four states and or areas that results have been uh, announced, uh, Bernie Sanders has won three of those, including the uh, the Democrats abroad. Um, so things have certainly begun to shift in Bernie Sanders' favor as the voting has moved out west uh, to some areas that are are more favorable to him in some of these new states, not new states, in some of these states that recently voted. Uh, as I record this, it is March 26th, and that means there are three states actually that vote today. Uh, those states are Alaska, Hawaii, and Washington. Uh, Bernie Sanders is favored by a number of polls in all three of these states. Alaska and Hawaii seem to be very strong states for Bernie. And Washington also has a potential to be very, very strong for Bernie. But of the three will probably be the state that it ha- that Hillary puts up the, uh, the biggest fight and has the closest results. These are caucuses in all three states. And we know the amount of time and the, the process of caucusing really favors those candidates whose supporters are extremely enthusiastic and extremely dedicated. And I think that Bernie definitely has a big edge in uh, that amongst his supporters. So I think he's got a a huge opportunity to have some big wins racked up here. Uh, Hawaii and Alaska do not have all that many delegates. There are 16 delegates in Alaska and there are 25 in Hawaii. So the big prize for today is Washington, um, where there are 101 pledged delegates in Washington state. So if Bernie Sanders can have a big win there and and win in Washington and win in sorry, and win in Alaska and in Hawaii as well, he can start to shave away at Hillary Clinton's delegate lead. She still has a lead of about 300 uh, delegates, pledged delegates. So it's still a tough, tough job to shave away that delegate lead and for Bernie Sanders to really get back in uh, contention. There are some big, big states upcoming, but Hillary Clinton has much stronger prospects in some of those big states like New York, California, Pennsylvania, New Jersey that are coming up later in the primary season. And on to a story from usuncut.com. And this piece is by Tom Cahill. Thousands of Illinois primary voters turned away from their polling places due to lack of ballots have been denied their vote after a recent court ruling. In six counties across Illinois, Adams, Champaign, Effingham, Madison, Sagnamon, and St. Clair, polling places ran out of ballots amid higher than expected voter turnout, meaning thousands of voters were sent home after waiting in line. On March 7, Adams County State Attorney John Bernard went before Adams County Circuit Judge Chet Vale to ask for an injunction that would grant those voters the ability to vote 
late due to ballot issues. The next day, Illinois Attorney General Lisa Madigan, an ardent Hillary Clinton supporter who has introduced her at campaign rallies, filed an appeal in Illinois' 4th District Appellate Court to prevent late voting. On March 23, the appellate court issued a stay on Judge Vail's injunction, meaning those voters won't get a chance to cast ballots in this primary. Hillary Clinton won Illinois by roughly 35,000 votes, or a slim 1.8% margin, effectively splitting delegates with Sanders. Bernie Sanders won in four of the six Illinois counties that had ballot shortages. In Champaign County, Sanders beat Clinton 20,581 to 10,542, almost a two-to-one margin. Bernie Sanders beat Clinton in rural Effingham County 1,247 to 867. He won by 3,391 votes in Madison County, and he won 10,365 votes to Clinton's 9,255 votes in Saginaw County. In a phone interview, Adams County State Attorney John Barnard said that had there been enough ballots available in those counties, the end result may have been a Sanders win rather than a Clinton victory. Quote, I think it's certainly possible, Barnard told U.S. Uncut. Quote, the number of voters that were turned away was in the thousands. Sagnamong and Madison counties are huge for Democrats. Barnard believes the Attorney General's position in preventing late voting was due to a desire to have uniformity in the voting process, as other counties do not have late voting. But he points out that late voting would actually restore equality, stating, quote, I would actually agree with the call for uniformity because there is no uniformity in some people not being allowed to vote because there aren't enough ballots. Quote, what occurred here is that the county clerk failed to print sufficient ballots to meet the demands of voters, Barnard said. How ironic is it that the entity who appears to be the guardian of the right to vote is the entity that deprived people of that right? So definitely some uh, issues in Illinois. We see, you know, various different types of issues in many states, um, most of which, while very, very important because anytime voters get disenfranchised and, and aren't allowed to cast a vote when they want to cast a vote, it's a serious issue. Um, but But not many of these places are places where that would have swung the vote and uh and changed changed things significantly though as i mentioned last episode there are you know several states where the margin the the final margin of voting was less than 2% so certainly any kind of edge legal or otherwise that uh a candidate or a party can um can push forward or or slip into the process could certainly swing a state that is that close i mean that that's a, a matter of you know one percent you push one percent of the voters from one side to the other or in this case you know disenfranchise less than two percent of all the voters that attempt to vote and in in these really really close cases that is enough to put the win in the other column and that's important that's important for 
a candidate uh, in their election and in their fundraising and and in their attempts to to win the election to say, you know, I have won X number of states and my opponent has won X number of states. Um, but in the delegate race, in the delegate race, those very, very close uh, wins do not have a big impact on the total delegates that are being earned uh, towards the nomination. And on to a story from Wall Street Journal at WSJ.com. And this is by Erica E. Phillips. West Coast port dock workers endorsed Bernie Sanders for president on Thursday, breaking with their counterparts on the East Coast who had endorsed Hillary Clinton. Mr. Sanders, a Vermont Democratic senator who has run behind Mrs. Clinton in the race for the party's nomination, quote, is best on the issues that matter most to American workers. Robert McElrath, president of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, said in a statement that includes, quote, better trade agreements, support for unions, fair wages and other issues, including fighting a corrupt campaign finance system. The ILWU represents about 50,000 workers at ports in California, Oregon, Washington, Alaska, Hawaii. And those last three are really, really important. Uh, Washington, Alaska, Hawaii, as I just previously mentioned, those are the three states that are going to caucus or that are caucusing uh, today as I record this. So um, important uh, support from another union um, for Bernie Sanders. And Ryan Cooper writes in this piece from The Week, theweek.com. And this piece is titled, How Bernie Sanders Got His Foreign Policy Groove Back. Several months ago, the pundit class had a specific and compelling brief against Bernie Sanders. He was wobbly on foreign policy. It wasn't that he had bad views per se. His vote against the Iraq war is reason enough to rate his judgment higher than Hillary Clinton. Rather, he was palpably unsure of himself. While he was fluent and confident on domestic policy, he sounded hesitant and poorly briefed on foreign policy. It was doubly unfortunate, as Clinton is far more hawkish than President Obama, leaving a missed opportunity for Sanders to present himself as a defender of Obama's relatively non-interventionist legacy. Fast forward to today, and Sanders has developed a strong foreign policy vision that is actually quite a bit better than I had hoped. This is undoubtedly due to him and his campaign working to fix a weakness, but some credit should also go to the Clinton campaign for helping dredge up some of Sanders' old, good foreign policy views. The new Sanders can be seen in an interview with MSNBC's Chris Hayes, where he articulates a reasonably comprehensive foreign policy approach. He favors continued action against ISIS, though only with the support of neighboring Muslim nations, which have a lot at stake. He correctly, he's correctly skeptical of Saudi Arabia, arguing their war in Yemen is a misplaced priority at best. In keeping with a general pro-diplomacy view, he supports the Iran deal, and while he's suspicious of the country, he argues it could be a good foundation for future relations and a relaxation of tensions.
Perhaps best of all, he's not ludicrously biased towards Israel. He was the only major candidate from either party to decline the invitation to speak at the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee conference, rather remarkable from the first major Jewish presidential contender, especially given that the crypto-fascist Donald Trump did attend and his speech was greeted with rapturous applause. Clinton, of course, gave an outlandishly hawkish speech, clearly trying to position herself to Trump's right. But in a speech, Sanders said he would have presented at APAC if they had let him present remotely. He affirmed Israel's right to exist, but repeatedly emphasized that the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, particularly the ongoing expansion of settlements, is unjust, harmful, and a threat to Israel. Even more impressive, Sanders has spoken frankly about disastrous, largely forgotten military interventions in Iran, Chile, Guatemala, and Nicaragua that have since come back to haunt us. Quote, I'm not a great fan of regime changes, he said at a recent debate. Some of this may be inspired by the Clinton campaign, which attacked Sanders for his 1980s support of the left-wing Sandinista movement in Nicaragua, then fighting against the murderous right-wing contra militias armed by Reagan. Sanders used to have quite deep interest in foreign policy, and it turns out his old views were largely correct. While it's not perfect by any means, taken together, this approach puts him somewhat to the left of Obama on foreign policy, and far superior than any other candidate in the race. While Clinton has more experience, she has evinced no sign of having learned from the repeated failure of her preferred military interventions, insofar as it's possible for the president of a worldwide military hegemon, Bernie Sanders is a candidate of peace and restraint. And from the Huffington Post.com, uh, more on that speech that Bernie Sanders gave um, in Utah uh, regarding the Middle East. This is from Samantha Lockman. Senator Bernie Sanders declined to speak at the country's largest pro-Israel gathering in Washington on Monday. Instead, the Democratic presidential candidate, who was the only Jew in the race, gave a speech detailing his belief in a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But then, the speech he gave would have ruffled feathers before the appro approximately 18,000 attendees at the annual conference of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. The people gathered at a high school in Salt Lake City, where Sanders gave his speech, were at least his supporters. APAC had invited Sanders and his rival for the Democratic nomination, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, to speak. The group also invited businessman Donald Trump, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, and Ohio Governor John Kasich, the three remaining Republican presidential hopefuls. Sanders was the only candidate to decline the invitation, citing scheduled campaign events in Idaho, Utah, and Arizona, which hosts their respective caucuses and primary this past Tuesday. He did request to address the conference remotely, which the group decided wasn't kosher. So he did offer to deliver his speech uh, remotely to APAC, and they uh, determined that they did not want any speeches to be delivered in that fashion. So while he was out in Utah, 
Bernie Sanders uh, took the opportunity at one of his campaign events out there to deliver that speech. And here it is. Just before I begin talking about uh, American-Israeli relations, say a, a word about uh, to the media. Uh, we uh, received information this morning that we won the um, Democrats abroad a primary <laughs> with, I believe, 69% of the vote. That's a pretty good vote. Uh, what that means is that we pick up uh, over Secretary Clinton five more delegates, which I would mention to the media is about the same number of delegates that she gained over us uh, in Illinois and Missouri. So sometimes I think we exaggerate what we're fighting for is delegates, not states. Uh, and Democrats abroad gave us over her the same votes as she won over us in two tight races in Illinois and uh, in Missouri. All right, what I wanted to do today is put this thing down here. Um, is uh, I was invited along with other presidential candidates uh, to be at the APAC conference in Washington, uh, but obviously I could not make it because we are here. Um, but I did want to, the issues that APAC is dealing with are very important issues, and I wanted to kind of give the same speech here as I would have given if uh, we were uh, at that conference. Let me begin uh, by saying that I think I am probably the only candidate for president who has personal ties with Israel. I spent a number of months there when I was a young man on a kibbutz, so I know a little bit about Israel. Uh, clearly, America, the United States, and Israel are united by historical ties. We are united by culture. We are united by our values, including a deep commitment to democratic principles, civil rights, and the rule of law. Israel is one of America's closest allies, and we as a nation are committed not just to guaranteeing Israel's survival, but also to make sure that its people have the right to live in peace and security. To my mind, as friends, long-term friends with Israel, we are obligated to speak the truth as we see it. And that is what real friendship demands, especially in difficult times. Our disagreements will come and go, and we must weather them constructively. But it is important among friends to be honest and truthful about differences that we may have. Um, America and Israel have faced great challenges together. We have supported each other, and we will continue to do just that as we face a very daunting challenge, and that is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I am here to tell the American people that if elected president, I will work tirelessly to advance the cause of peace as a partner and as a friend to Israel. But to be successful, we have, we have also got to be a friend not only to Israel, but to the Palestinian people. Where in Gaza, unemployment today is 44%, and uh, we have there a poverty rate which is almost as high. So when we talk about Israel and, Palest and Palestinian 
uh, areas. It is important to understand that today there is a whole lot of suffering uh, among Palestinians, and that cannot be ignored. You can't have good policy that results in peace if you ignore one side. The road towards peace will be difficult. Wonderful people, well-intentioned people have tried decade after decade to achieve that, uh, and it, it will not be easy. And I cannot tell you exactly how it will look. Uh, I do not believe that anyone can. But I firmly believe that the only prospect for peace is the successful negotiation of a two-state solution. The first step in that road ahead is to set the stage for resuming the peace process through direct negotiations. Progress is never made unless people are prepared to sit down and talk to each other. This is no small thing. It means building confidence on both sides, offering some signs of good faith, and then proceeding to talks when conditions permit them to be constructive. Again, this is not easy, but that is the direction in which we've got to go. This will require compromises on both sides, but I believe it can be done. I believe that Israel, the Palestinians, and the international community can, must, and will rise to the occasion and do what needs to be done to achieve a lasting peace in a region of the world that has seen so much war, so much conflict, and so much suffering. Peace will require the unconditional recognition by all, by all people, of Israel's right to exist. It will require an end to attacks of all kinds against Israel. Peace will require that organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah renounce their efforts to undermine the security of Israel. It will require the entire world to recognize Israel. Peace has to mean security for every Israeli from violence and terrorism. But peace also means security for every Palestinian. It means achieving self-determination, civil rights, and economic well-being for the Palestinian people. <laughs> peace will mean ending what amounts to the occupation of Palestinian territory, establish, establishing mutually agreed upon borders, and pulling back settlements in the West Bank, just as Israel did in Gaza, once considered an unthinkable move on Israel's part. And that is why I join much of the international community, including the U.S. State Department and, Europe, and the European Union, in voicing my concern that Israel's recent expropriation of an additional 579 acres of land in the West Bank undermines the peace process and ultimately Israeli security as well. It is absurd for elements within the Netanyahu government to suggest that building more settlements in the West Bank is the appropriate response to the most recent violence. It is also not acceptable that the Netanyahu government decided to withhold hundreds of millions of shekels in tax revenue from the Palestinians, which it is supposed to collect on their behalf. But by the same token, 
It is also unacceptable for President Abbas to call for the abrogation of the Oslo Agreement when the goal should be the ending of violence. Peace will also mean ending the economic blockade of Gaza, and it will mean a sustainable and equitable distribution of precious water resources so that Israel and Palestine can both thrive as neighbors. Right now, Israel controls about 80% of the water reserves in the West Bank. Inadequate water supply has contributed to the degradation and desertification of Palestinian land. A lasting peace will have to recognize Palestinians are entitled to control their own lives, and there is nothing human life needs more than water. Peace will require strict adherence by both sides to the tenets of international humanitarian law. This includes Israeli ending disproportionate responses to being attacked, even though any attack on Israel is unacceptable. We recently saw a dramatic example of just how important this concept is. In 2014, the decades old, a conflict escalated once more as Israel launched a major military campaign against Hamas in the Gaza Strip. The Israeli offensive came after weeks of indiscriminate rocket fire into its territory and the kidnapping of Israeli citizens. Of course, I strongly object to Hamas's long-held position that Israel does not have a right to exist. That is unacceptable. And of course, I strongly condemned indiscriminate rocket fire by Hamas into Israeli territory and Hamas's use of civilian neighborhoods to launch those attacks. I condemn the fact that Hamas diverted funds and materials for much-needed construction projects designed to improve the quality of life of the Palestinian people and instead used those funds to construct a network of tunnels for military purposes. However, let me also be very clear. I, along with many supporters of Israel, spoke out strongly against the Israeli counterattacks that killed nearly 1,500 civilians and wounded thousands more. I condemned the bombing of hospitals, schools, and refugee camps. Today, Gaza is still largely in ruins. The international community must come together to help Gaza recover. That doesn't mean rebuilding factories that produce bombs and missiles, but it does mean rebuilding schools, homes, and hospitals that are vital to the future of the Palestinian people. These are difficult subjects. They are hard to talk about for many Americans and for Israelis. I recognize that, but it is clear to me that the path toward peace will require tapping into our shared humanity to make hard but just decisions. Nobody can tell when peace will be achieved between Israel and the Palestinians. No one knows the exact order that compromises will have to be made 
to reach a viable two-state solution. But as we undertake that work together, the United States will continue its unwavering commitment to the safety of Israeli citizens and the country of Israel. Now let me just say a word about an overall agenda for the Middle East. Of course, beyond the Palestinian question, Israel finds itself in the midst of a region in severe upheaval. ISIS threatens the security of the entire region and beyond, including our own countries and our allies. Secretary of State John Kerry was right to say that ISIS is committing genocide, and there is no doubt in my mind that the United States must continue to participate in an international coalition to destroy this barbaric organization. While obviously much, much needs to be done, so far our effort has made some important uh, progress as airstrikes have degraded ISIS's military capacity and the group has lost more than 20% of its territory in the past year. So we are making some progress. But we are entering a difficult period in the campaign against this barbaric organization. The government in Baghdad has yet to achieve a sustainable political order that unites Iraq's various ethnic and sectarian factions, which has limited its ability to sustain military victories against ISIS. Unless there is a united government, it's going to be hard to be effective in destroying ISIS. More inclusive, stable governance in Iraq will be vital to inflict a lasting defeat on ISIS. Otherwise, ISIS could regain its influence or another similar organization may spring up in its place. In Syria, the challenges are even more difficult and more complicated. The fractured nature of the civil war there has often diluted the fight against ISIS, exemplified by the Russian airstrikes that prioritized hitting anti-Assad fighters rather than ISIS. And just like in Iraq, ISIS cannot be defeated until the groups that take territory from ISIS can responsibly govern the areas they take back. Ultimately, this will require a political framework for all of Syria. The U.S. must also play a greater role disrupting the financing of ISIS and efforts on the Internet to turn disaffected youth into a new generation of terrorists. While the U.S. has an important role, very important role to play in defeating ISIS, that struggle must be led by the Muslim countries themselves on the ground. I agree with King Abdullah of Jordan, who a number of months ago made it clear that what is going on there right now is nothing less than a battle for the soul of Islam and the only people who will effectively destroy is, will effectively destroy ISIS there will be Muslim troops on the ground. 
So what we need is a coalition of those countries. Now, I am not suggesting, not suggesting that Saudi Arabia or any other state in the region invade other countries, nor unilaterally intervene in conflicts driven in part by sectarian tensions. What I am saying is that the major powers in that region, especially the Gulf states, have to take greater responsibility for the future of the Middle East and the defeat of ISIS. What I am saying is that countries like Qatar, which intends to spend up to $200 billion to host the 2022 World Cup, Qatar, which per capita is the wealthiest country in the world, Qatar can do much more to contribute to the fight against ISIS. If they are prepared to spend $200 billion for a soccer tournament, then they have got to spend a lot more in the fight against a barbaric organization. Now, what I am also saying is that other countries in the region, like Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia has the fourth largest defense budget in the world. People don't know that. Fourth largest defense budget in the world. And Saudi Arabia has got to dedicate itself more fully to the destruction of ISIS instead of other military adventures like the one it is pursuing right now in Yemen. And keep in mind that while ISIS is a, obviously a very dangerous and formidable enemy, ISIS has only about 30,000 fighters on the ground. So when we ask the nations in the region to stand up, nations in the region which have millions of men and women under arms, we know it is surely within their capability to destroy ISIS. Now, the United States has every right in the world to insist on these points. Remember, I want everybody to remember that not so many years ago, it was the United States and our troops that reinstalled the royal family in Kuwait after Saddam Hussein's invasion in 1990. We put these people back on the throne. Now they have the obligation to work with us and other countries to destroy ISIS. The very wealthy, and some of these countries are extraordinarily wealthy from oil money or gas money, these very wealthy and powerful nations in that region can no longer expect the United States to do their work for them. Uncle Sam cannot and should not do it all. We are not the policemen of the world. As we continue a strongly coordinated effort against ISIS, the United States and other Western nations should be supportive of efforts to fight ISIS and Al-Qaeda. But it is the countries in the region that have to stand up to these violently extremist and brutal organizations. Now, I realize that given the geopolitics of the region, this is not going to be easy. I realize that there are very strong and historical disagreements between different countries in the region. 
about how ISIS should be dealt with. I realize different countries have different priorities, but we can help set the agenda and mobilize stronger collective action to defeat ISIS in a lasting way. Bottom line is, the countries in the region, countries which, by the way, are most threatened by ISIS, they're going to have to come together. They're going to have to work out their compromises. They are going to have to lead the effort with the support of the United States and other major powers in destroying ISIS. Another major challenge in the region, of course, is the Syrian civil war, one of the worst humanitarian disasters in modern history. After five years of brutal conflict, the only solution in Syria will be, in my view, a negotiated political settlement. Those who advocate for stronger military involvement by the U.S. to oust Assad from power have not paid close enough attention to history. That would simply prolong the war and increase the chaos in Syria, not end it. In other words, we all recognize that Assad is a brutal, brutal dictator. But I think our priorities right now have got to be destroy ISIS, work out a political settlement with Russia and Iran to get Assad out of power. I applaud Secretary Kerry and the Obama administration for negotiating a partial ceasefire between the Assad regime and most opposition forces. The ceasefire shows the value of American-led diplomacy rather than escalating violence. It may not seem like a lot, but it is. Diplomacy in this instance has had some real success. Let me also say what I think most Americans now understand, that for a great military power like the United States, it is easy to remove a brutal dictator from power. But it is much more difficult to comprehend what happens the day after that tyrant is removed from power and a political vacuum occurs. All of us know what has occurred in Iraq. We got rid of Saddam Hussein, a brutal, brutal murderer and a tyrant. And yet we created massive instability in that region, which led to the creation of ISIS. I am very proud to have been one of the members in Congress to vote against that disastrous war. And the situation is not totally dissimilar from what has happened in Libya. We got rid of a terrible dictator there, Colonel Gaddafi, but right now chaos has erupted and ISIS now has a foothold uh, in that area. Bottom line is that regime change for a major power like us is not hard, but understanding what happens afterward is something that always has got to be taken into consideration. In my view, the military option for a powerful nation like ours, the most powerful in the world, should always be on the table. That's why we have the most powerful military in the world. But it should always be the last resort, not the first resort.
Another major challenge in the region is Iran, which routinely destabilizes the Middle East and threatens the security of Israel. Now, I think all of us agree that Iran must not be able to acquire a nuclear weapon. That would just destabilize that entire region and create disastrous consequences. Where we may disagree is how to achieve that goal. I personally strongly supported the nuclear agreement with the United States, France, China, Germany, Russia, the United Kingdom, and Iran, because I believe it is the best hope to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. And I want to thank the Obama administration for doing a very good job under very, very difficult circumstances. I believe we have an obligation to pursue diplomatic solutions before resorting to military intervention. You know, it is very easy for politicians to go before the people and talk about how tough we are. We want to wipe out everybody else. But I think if we have learned anything from history is that we pursue every diplomatic option before we resort to military intervention. And interestingly enough, more often than not, diplomacy can achieve goals that military intervention cannot achieve. And that is why I supported the sanctions that brought Iran to the negotiating table and allowed us to reach an agreement. But let me tell you what I firmly believe. The bottom line is this. If successfully implemented, and I think it can be, the nuclear deal will prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. And preventing Iran from getting the bomb makes the world a safer place. Does the agreement achieve everything I would like? Of course not. But to my mind, it is far better than the path we were on with Iran developing nuclear weapons and the potential for military intervention by the United States and Israel growing greater by the day. I do not accept the idea that the pro-Israel position was to oppose that agreement. Preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon will strengthen not only the United States' security, but Israel's security as well. And I am not alone in that idea. While Prime Minister Netanyahu is vocally opposed to the accord, his is hardly a consensus opinion in Israel, and it's important that everybody understand that. Dozens of former security officials in Israel, including retired army generals and chiefs of the Shin Bet and Mossad intelligence agencies, support the agreement. Netanyahu may not, but many others in Israel do. But let me be clear. If Iran does not live up to the agreement, we should reimpose sanctions and all options are back on the table. Moreover, the deal does not mean that we let Iran's aggressive acts go unchecked. The world must stand united in condemning Iran's recent ballistic missile tests, as well as its continued support for terrorism through groups like Hezbollah. Going forward, I believe we need a longer-term vision for dealing with Iran that balances two important objectives. 
First, we must counter the destabilizing behavior of Iran's leaders. But secondly, we must also leave the door open to more diplomacy to encourage Iranian moderates and the segments of the Iranian people, especially the younger generations, who want a better relationship with the West. While only a small step in the right direction, I was heartened by the results of the recent parliamentary elections in which Iranian voters elected moderates, they elected moderates in what was in part a referendum on the nuclear deal. I know that some say that there is just no dealing with Iran in any way at all for the foreseeable future. And that is the position of some. After all, Iran is in competition with Saudi Arabia and its allies for influences over that region. But a more balanced approach towards Iran that serves our national security interests <clears throat> should hardly be a radical idea. We have serious concerns about the nature of the Iranian government, but we have to be honest enough, and sometimes we are not, to admit that Saudi Arabia, a repressive regime in its own right, is hardly an example of Jeffersonian democracy. Balancing firmness with willingness to engage with diplomacy in dealing with Iran will not be easy, but it is the wisest course of action, course of action to help improve the long-term prospects of stability and peace in the Middle East and to keep us safe. Lastly, there are, these are some, not all, of the major issues where the interest of Israel intersect with those of the U.S. I would address these issues and challenges as I would most issues, and that is by having an honest and open discussion and by bringing people together. The truth is, there are good people on both sides who want peace. And the other truth is, there are despots and liars on both sides who benefit from continued antagonisms. <coughs> And I would conclude by saying there has been a disturbing trend among some of the Republicans <clears throat> in this presidential election that take a very, very different approach. And their approach, I think, would be a disaster for this country. The Republican frontrunner, Mr. Trump, suggested limiting immigration according to religion, and creating a national database based on religion, something unprecedented in our country's history. Now, this would not only go against everything that we stand for as a nation, but also in terms of our relationship to the rest of the world, it would be a disaster. So let me just conclude by saying this. The issues that I've discussed today are not going to be easily solved. Everybody knows that. But I think the United States has the opportunity, 
as the most powerful nation on earth to play an extraordinary role in trying to bring people together, to try to put together coalitions in the region to destroy ISIS. And that is a responsibility that I, if elected president, would accept in a very, very serious way. We have seen too many wars, too much killing, too much suffering. And let us all together, people of good faith, do everything that we can to finally, finally bring peace and stability to that region. Thank you all very much. And that was Bernie Sanders' speech on the Middle East and Israel-Palestinian relations that he had planned to deliver at APAC, but when he was not able to attend in person, he uh, delivered that speech while out on the campaign trail in Utah. Something else pretty remarkable happened at an event, a recent Bernie Sanders event. This story from theguardian.com by Lauren Drake. In the city where TV show Portlandia popularized the phrase, quote, put a bird on it, one flew right up to the Democratic presidential candidate's podium. A tiny bird interrupted presidential candidate Bernie Sanders' rally in Portland, Oregon on Friday afternoon to the thunderous applause of the crowd. Welcome to Portland, Senator Sanders, where the sketch comedy show Portlandia popularized the refrain, put a bird on it, as a way to parody the city's hipster aesthetic. The bird, breed unknown, although the Audubon Society later confirmed this was a house finch, a female house finch, the bird alighted on the stage before flying up to the Democratic presidential hopeful's podium. Sanders stood smiling and laughing at the little feller for a few seconds as the crowd cheered. Whether it was for the bird or their candidate was not clear. At one point, Sanders shrugged his shoulders at Mr. Bird as if to say, what do you know, you're a hit. The bird, seemingly nonplussed by all the attention, did not stay long, though, and after he flitted off, Sanders said, quote, I think there may be some symbolism here. I know it doesn't look like it, but that bird is really a dove asking us world peace. The thousands who gathered to see Sanders speak in Portland on Friday followed similar large crowds that have turned out for Sanders rallies throughout the Pacific Northwest this week. Sanders hit familiar themes during the Portland rally. He spoke of making college and universities tuition free by taxing Wall Street speculation. And he mentioned taking on the fossil fuel industry and raising the national minimum wage to $15. Quote, the truth is, if you work 40 hours a week, you should not be living in poverty, he said. He spoke of the Iraq war and noted Clinton's vote in favor of the war. She was wrong. I was right, he said. When he spoke of universal health care, saying health care is a right for all people, the crowd broke into chants of Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. Sanders also touted paid family leave, demilitarizing the police and respecting people's choices to love whomever they choose. Retired mill worker Gary Johnson attended two Sanders rallies this week. He noted the Clinton campaign's criticism of Sanders, calling him a single-issue candidate. But Johnson, 71, said the presidential hopeful's commitment to his message is what the country needs right now. He's what you might call anti-flip-flop, Johnson said. 
of the presidential candidate. Sanders closed the rally, urging people to vote. Quote, it is my hope and my belief both Washington and Oregon are prepared to help lead this country into a political revolution. So uh, at his event in Portland, uh, a pretty, pretty remarkable. If you get a chance, definitely uh, look for that video online where that House Finch in that stadium where Bernie Sanders was speaking first landed on the stage, then flew up and landed on the podium, perching on the top of Bernie Sanders' sign, A Future to Believe In. And uh, although the story says the, the bird didn't stay there very long, which which true wasn't a very long time, it was remarkably longer than you might expect. It was it was six or seven seconds, maybe maybe 10 seconds where the bird perched up there, looked around a bit. Bernie Sanders looked looked back at it, you know, smiled, uh, shrugged his shoulders at one point. And then as Bernie started to comment on the bird, the bird flew away. So uh, definitely something uh, fun and different to watch. And finally, a story from BuzzFeed.com by Adrian Carrasquillo. A California Norteño band, Grupo La Meta, just made a corridor called El Cremazon, The Burn, in order, in honor, not in order, in honor of Bernie Sanders. The band from Modesto, California in the Valley wanted the song to have a campesino sound, like what you might hear music playing at a Mexican restaurant. And soon as the song starts, it's clear the burn is being felt. Quote, he's the man with a vision to better this country, the song opens in Spanish. Running for president, but the rich don't want him. Bernie Sanders is his name. Now you're going to feel the burn. In an interview with BuzzFeed News, Juve Quintana, the 26-year-old singer and songwriter of the Burning Hot Tune, said his girlfriend turned him on to Bernie Sanders. Quote, I can relate to him and everything he wants to do for us, Quintana said. Quote, I thought what I can do so the Hispanics, the Paisanos, the Mexicans vote for him. Everyone I speak to says, I'm going to vote for Hillary. And I say, have you heard of Bernie Sanders? And they say, no, I don't even know who that is. The song, which was shared by Sanders' Latino staffers and supporters on social media on Friday, comes at a good time, with the campaign turning lots of its attention to California and its big pool of delegates in a June primary. Quintana is trying to connect with the Sanders campaign with hopes of opening up for one of his rallies to show that the Vermont senator has Latino support. And Quintana said part of the motivation for releasing the song was the violence against protesters at rallies for the Republican frontrunner Donald Trump and to push back against his comments about Mexicans and immigrants. Quote, yes, we are upset, Quintana said. I don't know what he's thinking about, but he forgets that even he came from a family of immigrants. And if they never came to this country, he wouldn't be here now. And this is why we all come for a better life for our families. So our kids can go to school. 
And that will wrap up this episode of Bernie 2016. If you want to reach out to me, you can reach out at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or you can follow on Twitter at BernieUS2016. And as we go out tonight, we will hear that song that I just spoke about. It is by Grupa La Meta, which you can find on YouTube by searching for Grupo La Meta or searching for El Quemazon. Thanks for listening. Y es un hombre con muchas visiones para mejorar a este país corriendo para ser presidente pero los ricos no lo quieren aquí Bernie Sanders se llama el compa su quemazón ahora van a sentir Nueva York estado que lo vio nacer y en las calles de Brooklyn se crió desde niño empezó a notar que los ricos se hacían más ricos y los pobres todo el día chambeando y muchos ni tenían para el frijol Hijo de padres inmigrantes que vinieron a mejorar sus vidas trabajando para salir adelante como todos lo hacemos hoy en día venimos con el mismo sueño sacar adelante a nuestras familias y échale compa Bernie hasta llegar a la Casa Blanca Los ricos ni la tele lo quieren, tienen miedo que vaya a ganar, porque quiere que el colegio sea gratis, para que nuestros hijos puedan triunfar. Quiere cuidado de salud para todos, sea ciudadano o sea ilegal. En Chicago cayó tras las rejas. Por protestar contra la segregación No le importa el color de tu piel Pa' él todos somos hijos de Dios Muchos le apodan Robin Hood Otros le dicen el quemazón Peleando por los derechos humanos Pero ni la ley lo aplacó él sigue luchando hasta ser presidente de esta nación. Bernie Sanders se llama el compa y este es su corrido el quemazón.